Hey, this morning, we're going to continue in our sexual formation series. This uh, message is PG-13. We have ratings for all those. So if you have teenagers in the room, uh, they can totally stay. We think it's really important. But if you have little kiddos, uh, you might want to check them in upstairs, through those doors, right up the stairs into the kids' wing. And uh, yeah, we're excited to continue in this series. Every day, we are being formed by the culture around us. New ideas come and go. Some fail, some endure, and some radically alter the very fabric of who we are. But no idea has drawn more attention, created more confusion, and been more damaging than the modern view of sexuality. If we're going to be a church of disciples, making disciples for generations to come, we have to talk about the one idea that's been taking out disciples at an alarming rate. This is Sexual Formation. Hey, welcome. I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're in our series, Sexual Formation. Like Billy said, this is PG-13. So if you're online, you have some kids watching, make sure to uh, put them in the other room because I don't want to say anything awkward and get an email about it. Uh, Some of you have been asking, why are we doing this series? Uh, Well, the reason that we're doing this series is because it is so fun as a pastor to talk about this. I mean, look who's in the front row, only staff. I, may, I, I pay them, so they got to be there. The rest of you are like, I'm just in the back today, just so he doesn't call me out. Uh, really, why are we doing this? We're doing this because we believe that we can't allow an entire generation to be discipled by the culture, that we as the church have to speak up into a very important issue of our sexuality and sex, and that the Bible can form us sexually. And I know uh, as we are in this series, there can be some uncomfortable moments, but we want to make sure that we listen to Jesus in our sex life. So as we start, where did you guys get your sex ed from? Where'd you get your information from? So for me, I didn't just have one sex ed teacher. I had a lot of sex ed teachers. They were the best. I mean, my first sex ed teacher I remember was when I was five years old. It was the Big Red commercial. Kiss a little longer, longer with bigger. Anybody remember that? It's like these two people making out. On t- it's seared into my five-year-old brain. I remember sex ed one was, okay, that's, you got to have really good breath and you get to make out with people. Perfect. Then you got uh, Jerry Maguire. Like, you complete me. You had me at hello. So from then on, I always worked on my pickup lines. Because women care about how you say hello. He he had her at hello. So second lesson, always make sure you got a good pickup line. Third lesson was really not from one person. It was like this group of people that really taught me to go from like a boy to a man. It was, uh, I just remember this over and over in my head. Sorry, okay. stuck in your head all day now. If you're married, go home and play that, okay? Other lesson, the school bus. Third through seventh grade boys know everything about sex. I learned so much from my friends. I mean, it, I didn't know what they knew, but once I learned what they knew, I mean, it changed me. School bus is a dangerous place, man. I, I don't know about you, but I learned some things that were actually not true. Uh, you know, we've all learned from our culture good and bad when it comes to sex and sexuality. And as kids, we're all formed like in those moments. As a kid, I remember, I literally remember that song. I'm like, 
holds you tight all through the night. I wonder what that means. I mean, we're always being formed. That's good. If you're a parent in here, I'm going to talk to some parents today, but it's good for us as parents. I have three kids. I have a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 6-year-old to know that your kids are being formed sexually right now. Our kids are having school bus experiences all the time. Kids today, though, aren't necessarily even just learning from the school bus. They're learning from TikTok stars, movie stars, and sadly enough, porn stars. That the influences on our society are not leading us to the sex life and the sexual beliefs that Jesus has for us. So today, I want us to learn from Jesus and how the gospel actually teaches us about sex, that maybe Jesus should be our sex ed teacher. But if Jesus is to be a sex ed teacher, why should we listen to Jesus? Think about it. He was born of a virgin. He lived 33 years single and died as a virgin. No sex in his line. So how do we learn from Jesus' sexual formation? Anybody ever asked that before in your head? You're like, Jesus knows about sex. How? No sex in his life. So how does he know? There's two reasons why Jesus has all credibility to speak to our sex life. Is one, he created it and he endorsed it. In Matthew 19, uh, 6, Jesus actually quotes him and the Father and the Spirit in uh, the beginning as they created. In Matthew 19, 6, you'll hear this at a lot of uh, weddings. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What Jesus is doing, and he's quoting from Genesis 1, where Jesus was actually there for the creation of humans with God, and him and God, with the Spirit, created man and woman, and that they might become one flesh. That word one flesh means that they might consummate the marriage, they might have sex. So Jesus started it all off with creation, and it goes, oh, you know what? People need to have sex to to create for pleasure, and sex was intended for marriage. God's first command also to humankind was not, don't eat from the tree. It was, be fruitful and multiply. God's first command to humankind was, have sex. Thank you for that laugh. Everyone's like, can I laugh at this? It really helps me if you guys chuckle, because it makes me laugh too. It makes me way less uncomfy. To be fruitful and multiply. God's original intent was it to be pleasurable, that it would go, that we would use sex to then create more human beings that would fill the earth. The second reason why we can trust Jesus in this topic is we trust Jesus with every part of the rest of our lives. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. See, the gospel is what we stand on, it is what we believe in, it is what we're saved by. We're to hold fast to it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is just not another message. It is not a fable, it is not a mystical tale, but rather it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. This is what we call gospel centrality, that the gospel might be central to every part of following Jesus, that he must be the center of our lives, that the cross must be the center. Yet our tendency as people is not to make Jesus the center, but who the center? Ourselves. So we want to put everything under the power of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus should mold and transform every particle of our being. In 2 Peter 1.3, it says this, it says, His divine power 
has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. As followers of Jesus, the lower the view, our view of the gospel, the more devastating the consequences. The lower your view of the gospel, you, there will be devastating consequences in your life. The lower view of the gospel means you have a lower view of God's divine power, and this will lead you to a life that goes against God's vision and against his intentions. So we bring everything under the gospel of Jesus. We trust him with everything. We're supposed to trust him with our finances, with our parenting, with our careers. We trust him for our salvation, which is the number one thing, isn't it? You trust Jesus to save you from your sin. You trust Jesus for eternal life. If you trust him with that, you know what you should trust him with also? Your sex life and your view of sexuality. If we can't trust him with all that and we can't trust him with sex, then he is not center. He is not divine. There is a consequence when we do that. So here's my hope for you today. We're gonna dive into this topic of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and how it speaks to our sex life. And that's what the gospel is. It says it is good news. What I don't want for you today is to hear bad news. Because good news makes you go, oh, this is the life I want to live. If you hear bad news during the rest of this message today, that is not from Jesus. Now, you might need to make some corrections in your life. There might be conviction, but it, conviction always leads to a transformed life, a joyful life, the life that God wants, and that should bring happiness and joy. So when we talk about our past, especially sexual past. For me, when the movie reel of my life starts playing and I think of all the mistakes I've made, I have a ton of shame. I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you all the things that I'm shame-filled of because my parents are still alive and uh, I don't want them to listen to it all. <laughs> but there's so much shame in my life. But what does the gospel do? The gospel has the power to defeat the shame of your past. It has the power to defeat the sin you just committed. It has the power to give us hope and a future. The cross of Jesus gives us peace and we can rest that his blood conquers all shame. The good news of the gospel is it heals and it restores any trauma you have, any abuse you might have, any manipulation or hurt sexually that you had. It can all be brought to the feet of Jesus and he can take it upon himself and he can restore you. Our name as a church is Restoration Church because we believe that Jesus restores. He can restore all our past, all our shame. The hope of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that it will redeem and transform your marriage your marriage can be vibrant every single day. It can bring forgiveness even in years of hardship. It can heal your sex life. Jesus came to give life and life to the full. It's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that it gives us wisdom to grow up the next generation. If you have children, it gives you wisdom how to navigate the world. It brings the prodigals home. The gospel of, has the power to complete its work. This is what grace is. I love this definition of grace. Grace is God's ability to work redemptively in any situation. Let that sink in for a minute. In any area of your life where you need redemption, grace is this. It's God's ability to work redemptively in any situation. So here's my hope. That we would be showered with his grace today. 
that he would work a redemption in each one of us and that he would restore what has been broken in us. Can I just pray for us? God, as we approach you in this topic, Lord, we ask that your hand would be here, that you would move, that your power would be great, uh, and that, Lord, we might learn from you, that we might learn your ways, that we might submit everything under your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I want to give you four gospel-centered sex principles from a 33-year-old single virgin, Jesus. Thank you for the laugh. Again, please, that helps me. First sex principle is this. Sex is more than, it's, than just physical. Sex is more than just physical. See, our culture has reduced our view. We've reduced it from a self-sacrifice, covenantal marriage to spring break culture. It's all about sex appeal. There's no consequences, and, and it, it only focuses on personal pleasure. Sex is just a casual encounter that's to be engaged early in a relationship. It removes emotional deep connection of our souls just to physicality, physical actions. In the movie, A Beautiful Mind, uh, I love this quote from John Nash. If you're a husband, you should quote this to your wife today. It says this, he said, I don't exactly know what I'm required to say in order for you to have intercourse with me, but could we assume that I said all that? I mean, essentially, we're talking about fluid exchange, right? So could we just go straight to sex? Next scene, girl slaps him. We all know that sex is more than just physical. We know that it was intended for deep connection, for deep love, for deep sacrifice. Yet, in our culture, we're so fixated. We're so fixated on physical ideals that portray sex about having perfect body, having multiple orgasms, and ultimately the goal is pleasure. This is divorced sex from impacting our entire human souls and beings. And as a people, most people think sex is all about technique or physical stamina or beauty. This obsession of just the physical is destroying our culture. It is destroying it. It has led to cultural emptiness in relationships, depression, anxiety. Think about it for a second. We are the most oversexed culture in the world, yet we're the loneliest. We're the loneliest because we divorced just it's a physical act from the deep emotion that comes with sex. Jesus has a better way, though. Jesus has a high view of sex, and it's to be more than just physical. It's to be about our deep connection of love. It's meant to connect two people. It's sacred. It's a bonding of love. Jesus always connected real love with not just the physical. In uh, Luke 10, 25, we define how we love God by how Jesus tells us to love God. We are to love God by, we are to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. See, love is not just, oh, it's a physical. Now, there's strength there, but there's supposed to be an emotional. There's supposed to be love that comes from all our hearts, all our souls, all our strength. Sex is meant to be more than just physical. It's supposed to impact your entire soul, mind, body, heart. A higher view that Jesus has is it's not just physical. So in marriage, to have a great marriage, we must see that our sex life is not just the physical act of sex. We have to recognize the intent of sex. And the intent of sex was to create vibrancy in your marriage. Jesus said that he came to give life and life to the full, but the thief has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. At the core of a marriage is our bond, where we're connected deeply with one another. Sex is meant to hydrate that bond, to feed our core bond between 
between a couple in marriage. Sex in marriage is to be pleasurable. Amen. But it's to be more than just pleasure. It's to be a bonding agent, and it's to connect us with one another in love and sacrifice. To my single friends, this is very interesting to me about Jesus. Jesus was completely filled with love without having sex or marriage. When we realize that Jesus was a virgin, yet he had completely fulfilling, loving relationships, it should be an encouragement as you're single. One particularly beautiful thing about Jesus is that his life is a testament to the fact that being single does not equate to being lonely, nor does it exclude enjoying deep levels of intimacy. Jesus had great intimate friendships and relationships. Jesus, just like us, lived with the relational fabric of the community in order to sustain his full humanity. The fulfillment of relationships and sex we think that will fulfill us, Jesus found through love and friendship and connection void of sex. Not to mention, your entire eternity, you will be single. So on earth, I got married really young. I was 22 when I got married. And people always make the big like uh, saying when they got married young, they're like, well, you know, I was more mature for my, I was mature for my age. I was like average for my age. I wasn't that mature. But we got married. We've been married 15 years. But I look to my life and I'm like, I have 22 years so far of singleness. And I have like eight, six or 15 years of not single. How long, still more of my life has been single than married. Maybe a third of my life I'll be single. Maybe a fourth, depending on how long we live for Molly and I. But we should not equate connection and friendship with our singleness and fulfillment because God, Jesus had completely fulfilled relationships. One area where our culture has gone crazy and has glorified the, the physical is the area of pornography. It's weird talking about this makes my throat dry. Thank you. So we've segmented this deep connection to just physical with porn. So porn makes more money than the NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL all combined annually. 56% of divorces can be attributed to pornography use. 94% of children will see porn before 14 years of age. 88% of scenes of porn have violence from a man to a woman. The effects are terrible. Abuse of women sexually is on the rise. This stat is crazy. Before internet porn, only 5% of men under 40 suffered from erectile dysfunction. Today, since internet pornography, 33% of men under 40 struggle with ED. Pornography is the third most common form of sex trafficking. Porn it, uh, consumption is associated with lower self-esteem, depression. And it's not just a man thing. Uh, there was a survey done of 18 to 30-year-old women, and 34% of them view porn once a month. What porn is doing to our culture has just made it all about the physical, and the consequences are devastating. And what it does, what porn, like any addiction does, is it puts us in a cycle of shame. And any really sexual addiction or addiction in general, you just feel a shame about it. And it kind of looks like this. This is called the binge purge cycle, uh, where, you know, 
you have this desire and you act out to do something that you said you never want to do again. And so you binge on it for pornography, alcohol, whatever it is. You binge, you binge, you binge. You have a ton of shame in your life and you have all this heaviness and you have this guilt and you make commitments, you make promises and you say, I'll never do that again. And then what happens? You go, all right, I'm going to put up some strong boundaries. I'm going to put this away. I'm going to lock down my computer. But a lot of times no one addresses the issue in their life. There's a deep core issue that has not been uh, dealt with. And what happens? A binge happens again. And this shame cycle keeps going. If you've ever had to go through something in your life that you've tried to get rid of in your life, I think we all probably can. You felt this shame cycle before. And shame is so devastating. Shame is a deep sense of worthlessness. Shame leads to relapse and relapse leads to shame. It's just a cycle that goes over and over again. Shame becomes an identity that leads to self-hatred. That's not Jesus's way. That is not the good news of the gospel. Yet when someone shares their shame and they receive acceptance from others, it causes shame to lift. Learning to replace a shame identity with an identity in Christ is the powerful step towards freedom and from porn addiction. The good news of the gospel is this, is that if you're addicted in any way, it might be porn, it might be alcohol, it might be any area of your life, you have an addiction in your life, that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Romans 12, this is what Paul says, is that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to give our bodies over. Our bodies are not meant to be controlled by ourselves. It's meant to give to God. And this is what it says, that this is our spiritual act of worship. In verse 2, this is so interesting to me. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can renew our mind. Uh, years and years ago, brain scientists didn't believe that your mind could change, that once you, your brain kind of got to a place, it could never be transformed. The good news of the gospel, and science has proven this now, is that we can create new neuropathways where our brains don't think like they used to think. You can change a habit, you can change an addiction, but it has to be transformed. And what God says is, I will transform it if you renew my, your mind through the power of Jesus. That is the hope of the gospel, that he can transform every part of us. If you're someone in here, and I, I struck a nerve with kind of this idea of porn, or know someone that's struggling in this area, uh, I've been able to see hundreds of people get completely free from this addiction uh, through one of my, my buddy actually created a program. He spent three years uh, helping people overcome this. And it's all online. It's all free. It's called the freedomfight.org. It's 50 videos. They're like five minutes each. They have an app. They do accountability. It's an amazing, amazing resource. We actually have all our resources on uh, the RST app under uh, sermon notes and resources. I'd go in there and you can uh, sign up for that. Hey, and also if you're trying to talk to your kids about porn, Molly and I's view is we want to be the first one to talk about it because the stats say it's not if they see it anymore. Like when I was a kid, it's like you might not see porn. Now it's not if, it's just when. It's a matter of time. And so we wanted to be the first person to talk to our kids about pornography. Two of our kids we've had pornography conversations with. And I, it was just so easy. So don't know. <laughs> There's a book actually in our resources also called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. It walks you through. I had no clue what to tell my kids, but it's written through a a lens of a storybook and you read read with your kids and it is amazing. So if you have kids, I'd encourage you to check that out. So sex is not just physical. Second, sex is our witness to the world. Uh, 
You know, when you think of Jesus in like the primary metaphors in the Bible, most people kind of think of like father-child or they think of shepherd-sheep. Most people don't think husband-wife. Like one of the primary metaphors of the gospel is husband-wife, which is Christ and the church. In Matthew 9, this is how Jesus referred to himself. He goes, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. What Jesus is saying is Jesus is the groom and we as the church are his bride. This analogy is used as husband, wife, that Jesus is the husband. We as the church are the bride. And it goes on to say, you've probably heard this at a lot of uh, weddings, but it says, oh, husbands, love your wife. I thought maybe I was going crazy. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The witness of Jesus to the world is how much he laid down his life for the church, that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up to make her holy. Just like a a husband is to lay down his life, Jesus laid down his life for us. And I love what it says. Did you catch it? That us as a people, Jesus did this to give us, to be a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. Think of King David. King David was an adulterer and a murderer. and And the power of God transforms and it cleanses. Paul was a murderer of Christians. What the gospel analogy here is that Jesus came to not make you have a single wrinkle or blemish. So when you have any sort of shame in your life, you need to know that Jesus covers that. That is the gospel. He came to make us without stain, holy and blameless, not to be perfect because we could not be perfect on our own, but to be perfect through the raising of his body through resurrection. In Joel, it says, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. For some of you in here today, you might look back to your past and you might think back to your sexual past or just any area of your past and you might have a ton of shame and it might be pulling you down. I love this. I will restore to you the years that were eaten. If you have a past, Jesus goes, the gospel's one where he will restore all sin. So the metaphor continues in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. It says, for this reason, we already kind of read this, man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and two will become one flesh. Listen here. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So what he's saying is this is an analogy for you guys, but this is Christ with the church, that Jesus has a metaphor of himself in a union of marriage with us, which is kind of weird to think that his analogy might be a covenantal act of sex, that that is what Jesus is talking about right now. But if you think about it in kind of sexual innuendo, Jesus enters the world, the world receives him, and then what happens? Life comes to people, then disciples are multiplied, Multiplication happens. This analogy of sex is holy ground. So sex is holy ground. Sex through the lens of Jesus is a covenant. This is bigger than you being like a good little girl, good little boy. Like we shouldn't do that because Jesus told us not. No, this is a representation of his commitment, his love to us. What I'm so grateful for is I just have so many people in here I'm so proud of when it comes to this area. I watch so many people that go, I want my sex life and how I 
use my body to glorify God, to be a witness to the world because the world sees when we are different. I have so many friends that are single that are going, you know what, I'm gonna do it different. I'm gonna hold off on sex till marriage and you are freaking weird in this culture. I was talking to my counselor last week and I was, was like, why is it so hard, especially as a single person? He goes, well, the whole culture tells you you're messed up if you do not have sex before marriage. Like he was telling me he has so many people that, one, one, one of the uh, parties of the relationship will draw a line and the other person thinks they're gay because they won't have sex with them because it's so countercultural. I'm so proud of you that are saying, man, I'm gonna do it the way God has intended for my sex life to be. For all of you raising your kids, I, I talk to parents all the time, and it's so hard in this world, the influences that are happening, the difficult talks you have to have over and over again, being cautious with technology, and having that question over and over and over again, why can't I do what my friends do, or why can't I have what my friends have? Thank you. You are a witness to the world around you. You are different, and it is changing our world, even though it is hard. In your marriage, some of you are, I'm so inspired by. Molly and I have been married 15 years and I look at your God-honoring marriages and how much hope it gives me that you guys love one another, you sacrifice for one another. That's a witness to our world. If you wanna be a witness to the world, I think of 1 John 3.16 and it's the gospel really played out in it. It says, this is how we know what love is. You want a loving relationship, you want love with your wife, you want love with your friends, you want love with your kids. This is how. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, the gospel. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Our culture sexually is driven by self-centered desire. Our world does not lay down their life. Our witness to the world is to lay down our lives like Jesus. This can be done in marriage. If you're married and want a better, better sex life, you know what you need to do? Sacrifice, lay down your life. Like, go above and beyond for your spouse. And the caveat here, this does not mean uh, if your spouse is taking advantage, you, advantage of you or in any abusive nature or manipulation, that is wrong. But how can we sacrifice our lives for one another? Some of the best marriage advice Molly and I got when, right when we got married, when you're like interacting with one another or trying to help each other out or having a fight, people think a lot of times, okay, I go 50%, my spouse goes 50%. The marriage advice we got was both of you go 100%. That's what real laying down your life is. You're going, I'm going to lay down my life for my spouse because that is what love is. So to be a witness to the world, if you're married, if you're single, if you're raising kids, what can we do? We are to sacrifice. We are to lay down our life. And when you lay down your life, the world will know you are different. The world will know he is king. That is our primary witness to the world around us, how we sacrifice. So who and how can you sacrifice this week for? You can lay down your life. The third gospel-centered sex principle from a 33-year-old single virgin is this. Sex facilitates transformation. Here's the truth. Jesus wants to change you. He wants also to protect you. The gospel is that of transformation from a loving father who wants what is best for you. Uh, my wife, Molly, she went on a girl's retreat last week. Every time Molly leaves, I decide I'm gonna be Gordon Ramsay and like do a whole, like I'm gonna cook for like two hours. I don't know what gets into me. I'm just like, let's go. And I always do seafood because Molly doesn't like seafood. So I, I'm going seafood, like medley Alfredo. So I heat up the pan. I got, I was too cheap to get like, uh, 
I went to like Whole Foods and it was like 40 bucks for the seafood. So I went to Trader Joe's and got frozen seafood for $9 uh, and took it to the pan and I had it going and we have a gas like stovetop. And so I, I throw, throw it in and I think I just left the gas on too long because I threw this frozen medley in the pan and literally the fire jumped over the pan and went in the pan and it went straight up. And no, no lie, it was touching my ceiling. And I'm like, Ah, this is my house is burning down. And so I like grab the pan and I bring it out of here and it finally goes out and I'm like shaking and there's black soot all over. So I immediately don't even care about, <laughs> I don't care about the food because I'm like, oh crap, if Molly gets home and sees that, I'm so screwed. <laughs> so I clean it all off and then keep making it. So sex is just like that. Sex is like a fire. Like how did he get there? Fire is useful, it's powerful, but out of place, it's very dangerous. Sex out of the confines of safety and marriage is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly useful, it's good, but when it gets out of the place it is supposed to be, it can burn your house down. The heart of the father is this. It is never to restrict, repress, or keep you from what brings fullness of life. Jesus said, I that I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. The great paradox of following Jesus is this, is when we lose our lives, we gain our lives. In John 12, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. We honor God by following what Jesus says, either through sacrifice and marriage or fleeing sexual sin. This is our opportunity for our lives to be transformed in the likeness of Jesus by denial that leads to transformation. Resisting immediate pleasure is forming your character. Giving in to pleasure is deforming your character. When I got married, I thought that we would just have sex whenever I said we want to have sex. That's not how it worked. I found out really quickly. It's actually a process, and you can't just flip it on. That There needed to be sacrifice. If I'm super selfish in my marriage, you know what my sex life is? It's very, very bad. So there is a resisting of pleasure, even in marriage, that forms my character. The same as when we're single, there is a resistance that will form your character. Uh, I love my wife. She's an amazing mother. Our kids are wonderful because of her parenting, not mine. Uh, and she adopted the principle in our home years ago. She would go, uh, we're going to be high love and high discipline. So with our kids, we never even counted to three. We were just like, oh, you obey right away. That's what you do. So it's always been high love, high discipline. So we're pretty disciplined, but we go over the top trying to shower love, that we're going to love our kids so deeply, that we're going to forgive, we're going to speak life over them, we're going to ask for forgiveness when we need to. This is the mantra that I think is like Jesus. Jesus has a love for us. He's our king, though, also. So he has high love for us, and he has high discipline for us. Uh, on a side note, when, when you're parenting, and you actually have to discipline your kids, you know what happens a lot of times? Your kids push away from you. Anybody ever experienced that? You're trying to help your kids grow. You're trying to teach them the best way. And what do they do? They push away. I've had this happen to me multiple times with our children. And you know what I've found is it's just like Jesus with the parable of the 99 sheep. When one leaves, you don't go, well, they pushed away. They're gone. No, you run after them. 
you chase after them. You love them even harder. When my kids are at their worst, I'm doing with, God, make me love them. I'm going to pursue them, and they're not, I'm going to hug them. Like, my kids are pushing me away. I'm like, no, I'm going to love you right now. We're going to love. Like, this is our culture as a family, the same as that of Jesus, that when we run from him and we do things against him, he chases us down, doesn't he? And in grace, you can make your sexual life right. See, transformation is where you go, I don't want to live for my own life. I want to live on God's standards. Grace says you can make it right. You have a choice because grace gives you a choice every second of every day to do what is right in God's eyes. And what's interesting about sexual sin is sexual sin, anything outside of God's intent, we kind of like, once we've broken that sexual sin, we go, well, I'm just going to give up. Like, I'm going to keep in it. It's like the only sin that we go, oh, it's okay. I'll just, I did it once. Now I'm going to just keep going. No, you don't do that with lying. You're like, well, I lied once. Just going to be a liar. <laughs> I, I got raging mad. Just going to be raging mad all the time. No, grace says you can change in every part of your life. You can change sex, sexually. All you have to do is repent. If you've been living outside of the boundaries that God has for you, you just have to turn. You have to stop. You need to get help. You need to start the freedom fight. You might need to break up with that person. You might need to move out till you're married. You might need to just get married. For a lot of people, they go like seven, 10 years of like dating, especially if you're older and it's a second relationship and you're like, okay, we're living together. It's been good. And you're just like, why aren't we getting married? Well, I know we should, but we haven't. I would encourage you get right before God and get married. I'll volunteer as tribute. Uh, high noon, if you want to get married, I'll meet you in the chapel. I got a ceremony. I'm dead serious. I would love to help you take that step of getting married. Okay, we're going to close with this. Is that sex points us to the story we've longed for. The story and reality of Jesus' love for us is that we long for a story. You long for a situation in your life where you're fully accepted and fully loved and fully known. That is the story of the gospel. The gospel embraces us at our worst and gives grace to us at our worst, where we are fully known. We are fully accepted by Jesus, no matter our past, no matter what we've done. This is true in sex as well. In Genesis 2.25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Where there is no shame, there is love. Under this covenant of marriage, God makes us fully loved and fully known. Sexual actions should not bring any shame to our lives. We are meant to be accepted by Jesus, known by Jesus, loved by Jesus. And in relationships, in marriage, we are to be accepted. We are to be fully known. We are to be loved by Jesus. So for years, most people thought that the best sex was like you peaked it when you were 35 years old. That was like your best sexual, like physical side. But what, what people have learned more and more as we've done more research on sex and happiness, it goes back to we've just kind of boiled it down to the physical. But actually the best sex that people have is when they're in their 60s. And then it's typically because they don't care about the physical anymore. They can't have six-pack abs because it's gone. They don't, they, they're fully known. They can be fully accepted. They can be fully loved. They don't have to impress the other person. So the best sex in our church is like 60-year-olds, meaning this guy is having the best sex out there. Amen. He's in India. 
<laughs> Don't tell him. It's the gospel. They were fully known, were fully loved, were fully accepted. Do you want to know why most people feel a lot of shame in this issue? Especially when we talk about sex, breaking boundaries. It's because Jesus designed sex and our body is not to be worshipped. Our body is to be used for worship. Your body is not meant to be worshipped. Your body is meant to be used is worship. And the Old Testament, this is what the temple was for. It was to go to the holy, you go to the holy of holies, the priest would, but they would have all these people worshiping God at the temple. And then the temple was destroyed and Herod's temple came. And when Jesus was walking through the temple, the temple was being abused. He flipped over tables and, and he was so upset because this was supposed to be a place where worship might happen. 70 AD, the temple is gone. But Paul says, this is where the temple resides now in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Our bodies are a temple where God resides in us and it is to be used to worship him. This is why so much shame can happen when we go against God's design for our body because your body was meant to be where we could worship God. So even right now, as we move into worship, it's always kind of funny. We're like, how do we move into worship after the sex talk? This is how. We use our bodies to worship God. And this is what Jesus did. He said this in uh, John. He said about the temple, he was going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And everybody's like, what does that mean? It meant that he was going to go die. He was going to lay down his life, that he was going to sacrifice himself for all of us that three days later, he might rise again. We have a hope in a glorious king that absolutely loves you, that wants you to be fully known, fully loved, fully accepted. And when we present our bodies as sacrifices to him, we worship him. So I wanna invite you to close your eyes and pray with me. And I just wanna speak to a couple people. I know there's probably people in here right now that have a lot of guilt and shame of their past. I wanna speak words of life over you, that you are restored, that the gospel restores you, that it brings hope to you. And I wanna also speak to people that need to repent, that need to go, I've been living the wrong way. I've been doing things against God's will. And I want to make my body as a temple to Jesus. I wanna give my heart and my body to him. I want him to transform me. I know there's also people in here that, that have never accepted Jesus, that have never trusted him, that he is the ultimate ultimate example of grace and mercy. He's the story you have been looking for and chasing after your whole life. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know that you are accepted and loved no matter what you did yesterday, today, or tomorrow, that you have hope and grace and you have eternity with him. Not that you need to be perfect, but that he is perfecting you through him. So God, I just pray right now for each and every person here that as we come to this moment of communion and worship, that we would have you dwell inside of us and that we might honor you with our bodies and worship you, God. In Jesus' name.